if you get into places like Northwest Iowa, where there were farmers who would sit around talking about what it meant to farm to the glory of God. And they were very much influenced by Abraham Kuyper's thinking. And there are other kinds of reformed theology, but I, I don't know of any group of farmers that ever got around and asked how Karl Barth could help them uh, raise chickens or, or raise corn. Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. My name is Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we are talking with Richard Mao and Matthew Kamen about the new volume edited by Matt and dedicated to Rich, Reformed Public Theology. Over the next few weeks after the release of this podcast, we will be hosting a five-part review of the book at our online journal, which you can find at inallthings.org. As always, if you find the conversation helpful, please take a moment to share the episode or leave us a review. Thanks again for tuning in. I am an unlikely neo-Calvinist. As a Filipino-American raised in an independent Baptist church in suburban Kansas City, I was relatively insulated from the formative currents of the wider Christian world. From the perspective of my childhood church, my choice to attend Moody Bible Institute was something of a gamble, not least because they used Bible versions other than our beloved King James Version. Prior to attending Moody, I had never even heard of Wheaton College, much less Calvin College, and certainly not Dort College, now Dort University, where I now teach. Situated in the evangelical mainstream at Moody, I moved along the edges, spending a decade in non-denominational immigrant congregations, Filipino and Korean, where the concerns of white evangelicalism only occasionally intruded. And though I was briefly infatuated with the young, restless, and reformed movement, my initial exposure to Kuiper failed to resonate. I thought the Kuyperian stream of Calvinism was too ethnically specific, too Eurocentric, too Dutch, and therefore it was not for me. So what changed? That's a longer story, but it's not difficult to name a powerful source of attraction. I was yearning for a more grounded and generous theology, one that resisted the sensational and attended to the ordinary, and I found what I was looking for through Rich Mao. I first encountered Rich as a writer, then as a mentor, and finally as a friend. His winsomeness won me over. Without surrendering his convictions, Rich was willing to talk to anyone, listen to anyone, learn from anyone. And this posture he maintained was the direct implication of his Calvinist theology, one that worked out doctrines like common grace and sphere sovereignty in service of what he called principled pluralism, convicted civility and holy worldliness. If Rich represented the sort of Christianity that neo-Calvinism could produce, it was worth my serious reconsideration. As I've made my home in the neo-Calvinist tradition during the last seven years, I remain keenly aware of its Dutch character. Recognizing these roots is important, both for discerning the tradition's blessings and its blind spots. But if neo-Calvinism is to have a future, it will need to be translated into new settings, allowed to grow organically in new soils. A new book, 
dedicated to Rich, shows how this translation project has already been taking place. Reformed Public Theology, edited by Matthew Kamen, contains more than 20 essays written by intellectuals, artists, and activists who have been shaped by this Kuyperian tradition. A few of the authors bear Dutch surnames, as one might expect. Vanderkoy, Wolterstorff, Joustra. But other names bear witness to the tradition's increasingly global character. Rodriguez, Fujimura, Sutanto. Together, these authors, representing various nations, denominations, and vocations, testify to a faith that refuses to be private, insisting that Christian faith offers constructive contributions for the common good. I remain an unlikely neo-Calvinist, but Reformed public theology gives me hope that stories like mine could become increasingly common. Well, I'm joined now by two guests. Uh, the first is Matthew Kamick, who is the Richard J. Mao Assistant Professor of Faith and Public Life at Fuller Theological Seminary, where he also serves as the director of the Richard J. Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. His books include Christian Hospitality and Muslim Immigration in an Age of Fear, Work and Worship, and now Reformed Public Theology from Baker Academic, a book of which he is the editor. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. It's good to be with you, Justin. Our other guest, um, along with uh, Richard J. Mao, Professor of Faith and Public Life, is actually Richard J. Mao himself. Uh, so Rich is uh, currently Senior Research Fellow for the Henry Institute at Calvin University. And before that, he served as the president of Fuller Seminary for 20 years. He's the author of over 20 books. Maybe most importantly, he is a mentor and friend to so many of us. And Reformed Public Theology, the book, is dedicated to him. So, Rich, thanks for joining the conversation with Matt and me. Hey, just uh, great to be with you and honored to be a part of this discussion and honored by the book. And also uh, glad to be having a podcast with Sue Center, Iowa. Uh, but I've had wonderful times at Dorton. I'm a real Defender fan. Yes. Yeah, it's nice to have fans uh, far away as we sit here in the center of everything. So uh, in Iowa. <laughs> Let's start by talking about the title of this book. And really, this is a tradition, a scholarly project, Reform Public Theology. But let's figure out what this is. So uh, Matt points out in the introduction that public theology is sort of a new label. So for either of you, what, what is public theology and how would you distinguish it from plain old theology or something like political theology or Christian ethics? Where do you see public theology fitting with uh, all of these other kinds of theology. Matthew has written a wonderful chapter on this and covers a lot of the territory. Uh, let me just come at it from a slightly different angle. And it is, when I was a student in college, uh, a big book was Carl Henry's Christian Personal Ethics. And uh, that was sort of the central theme of a lot of thinking about anything having to do with ethics. Uh, but shortly after that, uh, Carl Henry himself began thinking about social ethics and how ethics applies to social life. But it was still sort of ethical problems as it relates to social. So, you know, I talked about marriage and sexuality and things of that sort. And then we, we got into the, the World Council of Churches had a program called Church and Society, and that reflected on the what the church, with its churchly ecclesial authority, would have to say about social issues. 
And then we got into political theology with liberation theology, especially stimulating a lot of that, where a lot of the focus was on theological perspectives on politics. And I think the wonderful thing about public theology is that it's a broader thing and it's really come into its own in the last maybe two decades. But, you know, writing a letter to the editor of the Sioux City Journal is a political, is a public act. Uh, doing public art, uh, doing a sculpture for a park is a, a public act. And so in many ways, public theology kind of opens up a much broader thing of which the state and society are all a part. And uh, to me, that's been very exciting, especially from our reformational perspective, because uh, we really do think that when we say that Christ is the the Lord over all of creation, we mean uh, the arts and economic life, uh, laundromats and <laughs> restaurants and, and, and football teams and, and all the rest. Yeah, so Justin, it definitely is a, is a new recognized academic field, but in many ways it is as old as scripture itself. So if you you know look at the Old Testament, God has things to say about the marketplace, about farming, about creation, about houses and families and money and trade and governments and war. Scripture itself is not simply a spiritual book. It's a public book. It's about nations and cultures. And to walk in the ways of the Lord uh, for the Israelites was to be holy, uh, not simply holy in your personal life, but holy in your social and public life uh, at the gates of the city. And so in many ways, public theology is a, a new academic field you know, distinct from theology and philosophy and ethics. Yet it's, it's it's a very old sort of inquiry of what does it look like to walk in the ways of the Lord, not simply uh, in the temple, but in the marketplace and the fields and, and the uh, king's courts. Yeah, as Rich mentioned, it makes sense for reformed types to be doing this sort of thing um, with the attention to ordinary life that the reformed tradition has has had. And so that's the other clarifying question I'd like to throw at both of you, because there are so many different perceptions around the word reformed, it's not always easy to define. Uh, what does reformed mean for the purposes of this collection of, of essays? The contributors to this volume come from a variety of different denominations and different nations and ethnic groups from all over the world. And so the word reformed does not mean to denote a very specific denomination or church. In fact, the, the authors disagree about a wide variety of issues. So what we mean by reformed here is really people who have been influenced by the writings and legacy of John Calvin and those who followed in his line. Calvinism and reformed theology spread from Switzerland into the Netherlands and into Scotland and England and Hungary and later on into New England and around into Asia and Africa. And so it truly is a uh, a global movement. But there are a number of sort of common elements that you can find in this book across cultures and races and um, denominations. And that really has to do with a deep desire to faithfully live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in every area of life. Uh, but more than that, I would say a common element you'll find quite often is a commitment to institutions and to communities, um, as opposed to just an individualistic spirituality and an individualistic ethic. 
um, a desire to be a part of flourishing families and universities and hospitals and businesses um, and artist communities that human beings are meant to engage in public life through communities and institutions. And we need those institutions uh, in order to flourish. Um, there, there's much more to say. And I, you know, I, I'd turn it over to Rich just about what is distinctive about reformed public theology. Well, yeah, I think in this regard, you know, very often when people hear reformed or, or Calvinist, uh, they're thinking of um, the doctrines of salvation. And the basic question there is, how does a human being get right with God? And the whole system of thinking about that in Calvinism and Reformed theology <clears throat> is uh, is put in very passive terms, and rightly so. We're totally incapable of doing anything to bring about our salvation. And so God has to elect. God has to act upon us. And he has to act upon us in a decisive way, irresistibly drawing us to God's own self and, and preserving us uh, by grace. So there's a, just a lot of passivity there. And, and it's at the heart of it that, that salvation is accomplished by ways in which we could not have brought about ourselves. But it's only by the sovereign grace of God. But, but Reformed theology, at, at its best, has always gone on to ask the next question, and then what? <laughs> you know, and then we start to get active. You know, so you look at the uh, the subtitle of this book: a global vision for life in the world. You know, how do we live in the world? It, it's not just being passively drawn to God, but it is then being empowered, being gifted, being strengthened to serve God's sovereign purposes in the world. And then we become very active, active in the arts, active in family life, active in our citizenship, active in economic activity. You know? I mean, this is overly simple, but the, the active passive thing, that once you get beyond the legitimate sense of passivity in getting right to God, God acts upon us and then makes us agents so that we then become agents of God's purposes in the world. And we need a vision for life in the world. And Calvin had a lot of that, but there's a certain strand of life in the world uh, that we identify with Abraham Kuyper and, and Herman Bowing. If you get into places like Northwest Iowa, where there were farmers who would sit around talking about what it meant to farm to the glory of God. And they were very much influenced by Abraham Kuyper's thinking. And there are other kinds of reformed theology, but I, I don't know of any group of farmers that ever got around and asked how Karl Barth could help them uh, raise chickens or, or raise corn. Uh, but Kuiper wanted farmers' organizations to embody this, this vision with a focus on the uh, farming in the world, you know, economic activity in the world, statecraft in the world. Yeah, so just uh, just playing off of that real quick, Justin, that that passive active dynamic there. So you have experienced God's love. Uh, how do you respond to that in as a nurse? Uh, so you have experienced God's justice. How do you respond to that as a lawyer or a judge? So you have experienced God's creativity and beauty. How do you respond to that as an architect or as a fashion designer? It is this basic reformed understanding that God's action is something that we respond to. 
um, that the ways of the Lord are something we want to walk in, in humility. And, and in many ways throughout this book, you have people trying to explore what does it look like, you know, to live this out in, in fashion and in, and in poetry and in economics and in politics and all those sorts of things. You know, as I read the book, I, I think when I picked it up, I was sort of worried because I thought, oh, you bring together so many different authors of so many different nationalities and fields. Is there going to be enough of a common center to hold this thing together? And I found that the word that I really came up with was delightful. It, it was really delightful to see that common, that common thread run through, but in such different garments, so to speak. And so I, I wonder for both of you, um, you know, Matt as an editor and Rich is now having read the essays. When you get these authors together, there are certain things you expect that you're going to find in common among the essays. Was there anything that surprised you or that you said, of course, of course, I would find that in, in these essays. As, as you look at the finished product now, what were some of the more uh, delightful aspects of commonality that you saw? You know, I think that uh, what, I, what I found, what I really enjoyed was uh, just working with authors who were clearly just enraptured with some aspect of God's creation. Uh, we use the phrase geeking out on something. And that's really what I see, <laughs> frankly, um, when a person gets really excited about a very specific topic and they see that particular topic or issue in light of the goodness and beauty of God. And uh, they come alive. And, I, and I'm thinking, you know, we've, we've brought up fashion and Bob Cavolo's fascination with clothing and reflecting on what it means to be clothed um, in beautiful colors and, and how we might think about that as Christians. And what comes through in Bob's article on clothing and fashion is the heart of a Christian man who is just passionate about you know, faith, Christian faithfulness and thoughtfulness and what God is doing in and through clothing and fashion and, and how we as Christians might come alongside that. Or I think of, you know, Dr. Agnes Chu, um, a Chinese American who is passionate about workers' rights in China and uh, the ways in which workers in China are treated in the uh, coal mines in China. And she is deeply impacted and passionate about the dignity of workers and the dignity of their work and their souls and their bodies and the responsibility of the Chinese state and the responsibility of Chinese society to honor the dignity of workers. And so to me, the common thread and the thing that I, I wasn't thinking about when I gathered all of these authors was their deep passion for one aspect of God's creation and the ways in which they, they sort of unfold uh, the mission of God in, in this specific area for us. And, and so to be an editor and sit alongside their excitement was, was a great experience for me. Yeah, I think I was thinking of some of the same examples of you know, Bob on fashion and Agnes on uh, workers' rights in, in China and labor unions. Another one, Eric Jacobson, that Reformed theology says something about apartment buildings in relationship to suburban neighborhoods and zoning laws. I mean, uh, you know, many of our friends in the broader evangelical world, certainly in the more fundamentalist world, would say to us, uh, where in the Bible would you ever get 
I mean, you could at least find some things in the Bible about modesty and dress and, and even about leaning laws and, you know, treating workers and, and, and the like. But where would you ever get going on thinking on a biblical basis about whether people should live in apartment buildings and mm-hmm. and and what buildings should be near, you know, how how close they should be to grocery stores, and whether front porches are a good thing, <laughs> or <laughs> garages and alleys, uh, you know, urban planning issues. And uh, Justin, this gets back to stuff that you have taught us so much about. I mean, there's a theological imagination that's at work here. Uh, you don't just go from God telling women to cover their heads uh, to a theology of fashion without a theological imagination. But we need that theological imagination. I mean, it, it, and and people like Bob and Eric and. Agnes have shown us how, how the steps between just looking at the Bible and and then looking at la- labor practices in China, how, how you go from Ruth and gleaning laws mm-hmm. uh, to people coming in out of the countryside and in China into the cities and, and whether they should be unionized and mm-hmm. questions of that sort. And uh, I, I think this book is a marvelous exercise in the theological imagination, uh, going from solid biblical basis to look at these areas of life uh, from a Christian perspective. perspective. Yeah, I think that's a good connection to make. One of the attractions of the Reformed tradition, to me, at least of this particular stream, the Reformed tradition has been what I saw as a curiosity about the world, Yeah, um, a sort of maybe holy curiosity, to say it in a rich mouth sort of way. You know, that if all things hold together in Christ and the world belongs to God and our neighbor is made in God's image, then we can have this courage and curiosity to go out into the world without fear, knowing that we will meet meet God there uh, in unexpected ways and unexpected places. And one of the emphases of the book, and one of the things that I think a lot of us find instructive about Rich's example is this willingness, this curiosity, I guess, this willingness to listen and to learn from anyone. And I was struck over and over again by how often the authors talked about the importance of listening and, and learning from others and how many just diverse voices are included in the conversation. And so I wonder if, if either or both of you could talk a little bit about even a reformed theology of listening and learning from others. But certainly the temptation of listening is always to just listen so that you can hear the wrong answer that then you bring the right answer to correct with. And then on the other side, the temptation, of course, is to sort of be ever learning, but unable to ever acknowledge the truth. So how do we listen to outside voices? How can we be trained to listen genuinely and to speak gently, continue to have firm convictions, but to be really genuinely learning from uh, voices outside of our own uh, tradition? Well, I think, uh, you know, for me, there are certain theological points that absolutely have to be taken into account here. I mean, John Calvin, I, I keep quoting him on this over and over, but, you know, he he really learned a lot from Cicero and Seneca, you know, ancient Greco-Roman thinkers on law because he had studied law. And even after he became evangelical, he had an evangelical conversion. He wasn't ready to give up on reading Cicero and Seneca and learning from them. And he liked Aristotle too. Uh, so, so he says at one point, 
you know, we, we need to learn from these because there's a kind of gracing of these writers that takes place on this course, the whole idea of common grace. And then he says, if we refuse to acknowledge the truth in these ancient pagan writers, we grieve the spirit of God. So that when we approach a Cicero, uh, we're not just there to find false answers, but we're also there to find the truth. And we know that the truth is there because the Spirit of God is working beyond the, the boundaries of the, of the believing community. And so there's an impulse there to, uh, to want to learn. And if all truth is God's truth, we, we need to be sure we find it wherever it is. And so it's the learning, but it's also a desire to be honest. I mean, there may be somebody that you just completely disagree with, but you're, you're not there to put them down and to win an argument so much as you are to uh, make sure that you're not bearing false witness against them by misconstruing their views or mischaracterizing or stereotyping their views. And so just that desire to honor the other person as a potential bearer of the truth and someone you know, with whom you have an obligation not to bear false witness against them, but actually to learn from them. And so that it's that anticipation of learning that is so important. And it's, it, it's important to God. Does that mean we're just constantly living, you know, listening all the time? I, I think the answer there is no, because there are, there are important issues at stake. And, uh, we can learn from Picasso, but we, we also want to be very clear where he, he doesn't glorify God, where he dishonors uh, certain things in the creation. Yeah, so I, I think I would just add um, that is for public theology as a discipline, it is meant to be interdisciplinary. And you'll find this in the book itself, that the authors are learning from other disciplines, you know, from science and poetry uh, and architecture and political philosophy and science and sociology. As Christians, they don't just think the Bible has all the answers or theologians have all the answers, but actually, you know, scholars um, from other disciplines have something important to teach us as, as well. And frankly, sometimes, you know, we theologians can, you know, imagine ourselves to be the queen of the sciences, as it, as it was said, that we sort of theologians know the correct, you know, thing in politics or economics or, or anything else. And it's just not true. And that public theology is meant to be a conversation uh, between theology and the disciplines. And, and that's really important as well. And that's why we have in this book artists and, and attorneys and um, activists, all included. Um, this book is not simply filled with, with theologians. Yeah, and, and, and I would add one more conversation, uh, necessary conversation to that, Matthew, and that is conversing with other Reformed theologians who disagree with us. If I have a, a tendency in my own appropriation of Kyberian thought, it's to uh, go heavy on listening and finding commonness, and uh, and and not paying it, not always being uh, paying close enough attention to where where people are really deceiving and and serving falsehood, hmm. and uh, so I I have to keep listening as as a kind of uh, keeping my 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 practices straight uh, to people who don't 
uh, emphasize common grace and listening as much as I do because they're, they're, they catch me on things. Hmm. And I need to be caught. So it's also why we need a community where some people are listening more to the Bardians and some people are listening more to people who deny common grace and some people are listening more to John Piper and and uh, and, and we we need to to have that kind of uh, intra reformed conversation as well. Yeah, that's that's helpful. You know, you mentioned that. It's sort of like if we're going to fall off the side of the horse, this is the side of the horse we tend to fall off on. And um, I was recently reading Lauren Winner's book, The Dangers of Christian Practice, and she argues that our practices have their own characteristic deformities, these common ways that they go astray. And similarly, our traditions also have these sort of problematic tendencies, you know, emphasize something good too much. And these flaws might not be essential to the tradition, but they might be endemic. They come up again and again and again throughout the tradition. And so we've talked quite a bit about celebrating this, what we might call reformational tradition of Kuiper and Bavink. What do you think are the characteristic flaws or the the common deformities uh, within this tradition? And what are the resources for correcting some of these flaws? Well, you know, uh... There's a there was a sociologist at the Free University, Dirk Kuypers, who uh, once pointed out that uh, to me that in the Kuyperian tradition, where there's a strong emphasis on the antithesis and a strong emphasis on common grace, that there was actually kind of a, a division in the Kuyperian movement between those who went gung ho on common grace and those who went gung ho on on the antithesis, and uh, I, I I think that. Kuiper tries to hold so many things together that there's a danger that we 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 end up picking one of those things in 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 our own way, uh, using that as the category for interpreting other things. I I I just think there's a sinful tendency in any system, but but in the Kuiperian tradition, I, I also think that. I worry about the ethnocentrism of it. I mean, you know, I mean, Kuiper was a, Kuiper and Bavink were both uh, people in the elite class in the Netherlands in a colonial period. Uh, They had a lot of views about things going on around the world. Not all of them were very noble ideas that they had. Uh, There was some really bad stuff that they, that they said. And, uh, I, I really think we need to learn a lot these days from other cultures, and especially people who are willing to risk being reformational, uh, let's say in a South African situation or an Indonesian situation or in a Chinese situation, uh, and, uh, and, and recognizing the dangers in the Eurocentric perspective that that we have, I could give examples of that, but uh, I mean, just the idea that there are all these spheres of, of life and they, historically, they, they, they differentiate uh, so that, you know, the tribe is family, economics, religion, military, all kind of bundled together. And then gradually those spheres historically get separated out. But, you know, it it doesn't happen in the same way in Nigeria as it does in Indiana. Uh, And 
the, the, the nature of the family in Southeast Asia is very different than the nature of the family in Brooklyn or in Amsterdam. And so we, we need to, yeah, not, not, not use the reformational perspective as it was formulated within a Eurocentric context. We, we need to draw the insights from that, but we need to be open. And this is why this book is so wonderful, because you do have Indonesian people uh, helping us to think different ways in which we might spell out these different spheres of life and how they still cluster together in certain important ways. The reform tradition is, is, is a tradition of, of the word. Uh, and ideas and thoughts and academic institutions. And so that means that, you know, one of the weak points for the reform tradition is, you know, relying too much on, on thinking your way through things. Um, and so we tend to struggle with uh, emotions uh, and, um, and feelings and, and sort of that aspect of what it means to be human. Um, I think that there's a heavy emphasis on engaging powers and institutions towards reformation. As reformed people, we can miss how institutions and powers change us. So as, as we engage in power, trying to turn the wheels of history, our, our hands get stuck on that. And uh, um, yeah, reiterating... Rich's points about those on the margins in terms of women and people of color and uh, the global church. There's just a deep need to learn from those on the other on the uh, underside of some of these institutions and, and global powers. And uh, I, I would just reiterate the need for a reformed ecclesiology um, and a reformed understanding of worship. And so this particular book closes with. I think five chapters looking at how reformed worship uh, should shape our public lives and really the, the importance of reformed spirituality and worship for our public life. And that's something that's a big part of Rich's life and story and work. And so we wanted to really emphasize that um, in this book. So you have things on the Christian spiritual practice of confession and confessing our sins and how that impacts our public speech and our public civility. And there's one chapter specifically looking at how baptism should impact our practices of sexism and racism. And, you know, how experiences of political trauma and hatred should interact with congregational prayers and how we pray, you know, around different political traumas. I think that's that's a passion of mine. I know it's yours, Justin and Rich too. Is is a richer reformed spirituality and uh, an affirmation of the emotional and spiritual life as an important aspect of what it means to be a public Christian, mm-hmm. not to put these things in separate buckets. Let me come back to something that has been mentioned a couple of times, which is the role of institutions, which, as you've noted, is an emphasis of this tradition. Uh, on our last episode of the podcast, we interviewed Kristen Cobus Dumay, who is a historian at Calvin and the author of Jesus and John Wayne. Um, and one of the things that she mentioned that she said, we need just more careful reflection on the way that we critique and support institutions. And especially sort of what you mentioned, Matt, the idea of our institutions change us. And uh, this was a point about which the authors in this volume had a lot to say. And so I wonder if either of you could say 
something about the ways that Reformed public theology approaches issues of institutional power, institutional sin, institutional reform? What are the contributions when it comes to faithfully loving and also criticizing our institutions? Well, Rich was the the president of a pretty good sized institution. So, you know, I will be very interested to see what he has to say about this. You know, I think the last, you know, five to 10 years has been really hard on Christian institutions in particular in America, but also just democratic institutions in America more broadly. Um, Institutions are under fire. And and I think much of that fire is well earned. Um, you know, there's there's been a lot of a lot of abuses, and I think that my generation, you know, I speak as an older millennial. They call us geriatric millennials. You know, my my generation's pretty good at, at frankly criticizing institutions. Uh, we we struggle to actually build them and build them with some sustaining power. And I think that often what's missing. Um, in the current Twitter discussions about institutional abuse and uh, dysfunction is, um, you know, you have this real longing for justice and recognition and identity and belonging, but a lack of an understanding that in order to receive justice and belonging and stability and peace and these things that we long for, we actually need healthy institutions. Uh, and we need to learn how to build them. If you think of it in terms of the Old Testament, I had a, a professor, Max Stackhouse, who said it this way. It can criticize Egypt and, and, and liberate you from the, the oppression of Egyptian institutions. But can it help you build something new in the promised land You know where you can flourish? So there, there are many theologies out there that can sort of deconstruct the oppression of Egypt. Um, but we we also need is a theology that can help us reform and build new institutions where human beings can flourish in justice and identity and belonging. Um, I think that is what the reformed tradition has to add to the global church is a reflection on what does it look like for Christians to build uh, governments and schools and universities that create just public space for all people to flourish. And I do, I do think that, you know, you take Calvin University, Calvin College, when I taught there, I, I, I loved the, the school, flourished there in terms of my own work and sense of community. But uh, just a couple of years before I, I left Calvin to move to Fuller, our son, started Calvin as a student. And I, I, I've said this many times, I look back on, on his moving onto campus as a student as transforming my picture of what Calvin was, because I realized, I, I knew this in one sense, but I, I, there are dormitories there. <laughs> there, there, were, there were communities in those dormitories. Uh, th- there were pranks that people played in which the seminary pond on the campus had had a, a big role. Uh, there was a counseling center, you know, and I had been experienced that that school in terms of going what goes on in the classroom. And I, I, I suddenly, I just got a whole different picture of what it meant to live on this campus and to study on this campus. 
And I had the same thing when I came to Fuller. I mean, I was on the faculty and then I became provost and, and I, I had no idea what auxiliary services was. And, and I had to ask my assistant, my, uh, who had been the assistant to the previous provost, I was going to meet the vice president for auxiliary services. I'm the new provost. And I had to ask her, what, what's auxiliary services? And it was food services. It was the bookstore and the mail room. And you think of the importance in, in those days. I mean, with, with the web, it's a little different. But the importance of the, of the mail service, M-A-I-L, on, on a campus where students were away from home. And this is where they got either very bad news often or very good news uh, from home. We didn't call our parents every day. We didn't text our parents. You know, you, you, you went to your mailbox to find things. So that even within a, a school shaped by a reformational perspective, there still is a kind of a myopia of, uh, of what the campus was. And I came to realize that some of the best people at Fuller Seminary were on the, uh, in housing services and, and the janitors, you know, who, who came around and emptied the wastebaskets and cleaned up the messes uh, and just wonderful people. And yet it's so easy to forget about that. And so what is a healthy institution has to take into account far more than who's, who's leading it or who's in the, in the teaching part of it or in the like. Let me take the conversation maybe a little bit different direction. Uh, one of the other elements that really stuck out to me is, is the way that the authors talk about God's sovereignty. You know, if you talk to your average person, say, what does it mean to be reformed or what does it mean to be Calvinist? Most will know that it has something to do with God's sovereignty. And yet the way that we talk about that sovereignty can be in a way that uh, almost sometimes so diminishes uh, humans so that almost the, the dignity is gone or in a way that really gives dignity to humans as we go about living in God's world. I think I'm, I'm drawn to this because the famous Kuiper line about every square inch is often leveraged in favor of Christians asserting their dominance over every sphere of life. So that if Christ claims it all, then Christians should go and take control on his behalf. And some, sometimes it's said that way, and then other times it just sounds that way to outside observers. Uh, but the vision of Christ's lordship that's in this volume and that's in the tradition has very different implications um, than sort of Christians seizing control of every square inch. Can you de develop that for us, either of you? Uh, what are the implications of God's sovereignty for the way that we live in this world with posture of humility and servanthood? Yeah, well, well we've, all, we've all encountered, <laughs> sadly, we've all encountered Christians who think of God as a hammer that I can swing around and hit people with. Um, and that is not the posture that this book takes or the authors in this book take. They think of um, sovereignty as something that belongs to Christ and not Christians. And that sovereignty um, is not a license for, for violence or brutality, but it's actually a license for Going into the public square without a sense of fear, it, it allows them to avoid the fight or flight choice of public square life, right? You know, we all know of Christians who take the fight posture in public life, and we all know of Christians who take the flight posture. 
And here, with this understanding of God's sovereignty, it is God is in control. Uh, so I can, my shoulders can relax a little bit. My hands can open up a little bit and I can do the work, the small work that I've been given in this area of life. I am finite and I am fallen, you know, um, but God is sovereign. So that frees me up to do good, faithful work in the area of medicine or the area of chaplaincy or the area of real estate or whatever it might be. And this understanding of God's sovereignty allows us to work with a, a sense of conviction and focus and joy um, without a desire to, to either do that sort of fighting or, or, or flight. Um, and, and that's what I see shot through the book uh, in, you know, very diverse places is uh, this sort of rejection of that choice to fight or flight. You know, I've argued this before that the dominant image of Christ that you often get in Kuiper and in Kuiperians is the ascended ruling Christ. He rules over every square inch. Uh, and, you know, that's very important, the sovereign rule of Christ over all of creation. But uh, th there's also something about the square inches and the suffering of Christ. You know? So I want to argue that um, Mother Teresa had a, had a real sense of the square inches that she had to go to uh, in order to be aligned with the work of Jesus. And that was people lying in gutters in Calcutta, dying lepers. We, we have to think of every square inch of the grieving parts, the suffering parts, the abused parts of the creation also belong to Jesus. And so we don't go out and conquer all of those square inches but sometimes we just need to be there, to be alongside of people who are, who are suffering and, and taking their pain on ourselves and listening to them and, and advocating for them. So that, that idea of let's go out and conquer those square inches in the name of Jesus, uh, it masks a lot of other things that, that we ought to be doing on those square inches. And I, I think that's one of the one of the dangers there. Uh, those are very important areas, I think, uh, suffering on the square inches of creation, advocating. And, and I think we, we need to keep pushing that. And, and that gets at the deeper issue, and you, you alluded to this earlier, uh, Justin, a spirituality of public life, I think, is very important that there has to be humility, there has to be self-critique, there has to be a willingness to learn, and even a willingness to take on the suffering of others uh, in our lives. And, and that's, a, that's a question of spirituality. And I think we need a lot more of that. Kuiper was himself, I mean, all of those wonderful meditations that he wrote, full of spiritual formation things, but there's a tendency to ignore that and just get out there and do stuff, you know. Um, and uh, Kuiper himself has that wonderful image in one of his meditations that the soul of a human being is like the is like the temple of the old the tabernacle of the Old Testament. But there's the outer court, and that's where we relate to public life. And then there's the the holy place where we relate to loved ones and friends. But he said we also know 
need to go into the Holy of Holies, where we're naked before our Lord and be, be formed and shaped by Him. Yeah, that's a tension we feel a lot of times here at Dort. Um, you know, people say things like, our work is our prayer. And I always want to say, that's that's great, as long as we also take time to pray, you know, <laughs> um, so then we have a prayer as our prayer. Uh, one of the other things we say a lot of times at Dort, almost sort of as a joke, that if there's something to do, we'll find a way to do it Christianly. And, yeah. uh, you know, that almost there's nothing, you know, that we won't try to do Christianly or talk about. And so I just, maybe a is is there a limit to this? Or is there any topic too too frivolous or too trivial for a public theology to engage? How do you think about that? <laughs> well, two things. One is I I think it's possible to be more serious than God, <laughs> um, and and so I think that sometimes the sort of you know we need to be Christianly in every area of life can get overly serious about life uh, as opposed to being more playful, but I'll answer the other side of it and say, just, you know, my mother went to a little reformed Christian school and she would tell me that she had a math teacher who would tell her, you know, two plus two does not equal four. He would say two plus two equals four by the grace of God. <laughs> and, and he said, you have to acknowledge that other side of it to totally understand that equation. You haven't completely understood what's going on there without understanding it within the larger creation order of God. And so it is to say that thinking theologically about every vocation and discipline is a way of honoring that discipline as a space in which human beings can glorify God. So, you know, for truckers and plumbers, it is really important for us as theologians not to put up our noses at these blue collar vocations, but to really honor them as places where saints serve their God and are wrestling with, you know, the effects of sin there and what it looks like to tear off a piece of the darkness, you know, in the, in the culture of truck driving. And so it's important for us to honor those aspects of life by taking them theologically seriously, but not too seriously. Don't be more serious than God. <laughs> I think some of it has to do with the, the, the level of specificity that we think of as involved here. I mean, I do think nutrition and uh, the proper use of resources in our kitchens is we have to think about to the glory of God, but I'm not sure there's a Christian way of eating cereal or making pizza. I mean, so I'm with you, Matthew, on that. Well, our time is sort of up here, but maybe in closing, uh, Matt, this volume is dedicated to Rich. And so I wonder if you could, in closing, just tell us a little bit about the story of uh, how the book came to be and the connection between the spirit of the essays and the spirit of our mentor and friend here to whom it's <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, the book took, gosh, about three years to put together total in, in uh, you know, reaching out to reformed scholars and leaders all over the world and working with them on subjects and um, helping them get down to 4,000 words so that, you know, the chapters are, are dense and tight and, and move quickly. And so that takes some editorial discipline. Um, and I have to say, you know, working across cultures, 
theologically, but also editorially, it was a really amazing experience for me personally, you know, working with, you know, diverse authors. And so, you know, I'm excited for your audience to check out the book. We've got, you know, Christians from Japan and Africa and Scotland and Peru and Brazil. And, but I'll, I'll, I'll close with one final rich mouth story um, because, you know, a, across the globe, you have all these diverse authors and yet they are all you know, impacted uh, and indebted to Rich Mao. And what we endeavored to do here with this book was not to write a book about Rich Mao, but to sort of do it in his spirit, in his style. And I think it's captured by one of his, one of his favorite stories that he tells quite often about um, visiting a meeting in rural Canada of chicken farmers. And he's sitting there in this meeting and a rather heated debate comes up amongst these Christian chicken farmers. And they're discussing this corporate chicken farm that is coming in and is sort of mass producing chickens and putting them in cages, you know, just focused on the bottom line. We're going to make a lot of profit off of these chickens. And the Christian farmers are all debating what they think uh, what their evaluation of, of this corporate chicken farm is. And up stands this uh, blue collar guy who has developed for himself a real theology of chickens. And what does he say, Rich? What, 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 is, his, what is his prophetic critique of corporate chicken farming? What, what does he have to say? Because I, I want you to say it for us. Uh, and, and then, yeah, go ahead. Chickens aren't just little hunks of meat that we buy and sell. Chickens are chickens. And they're not human beings either. Uh, they're chickens. So they're not reduced to what we, what we can make money on. But on the other hand, they, they, they don't have the same kind of dignity as a human being. But then this great line, he said, and God wants every chicken to be able to strut its stuff in front of other chickens. And just that sense of, uh, yeah, the, the order of things. Uh, yeah. That there are human beings, that there are pieces of economic commodities. But God created everything after its own kind. He even quoted that. Yeah. So here you have here you have a Christian in his very unique vocation reflecting on what does it look like to truly glorify and honor God in this place, in this time, right now. And what does God demand of us? And he's calling his community, his institution, to glorify God there. And the the teaching delight that that twinkle you just saw in Rich's eye, right? is this, this love for God's creation order and this curiosity of what does it look like to glorify God there. And throughout this volume, you have people you know, discussing God's order and beauty and justice and delight you know, in the Philippines and Indonesia and Japan and Brazil, uh, in medicine and in buildings and justice. And that is what this book is meant to call people to, is a taste and see of what does God have for us and how might we use a biblical imagination for a public holiness 
or as uh, Rich has talked about, a, a holy worldliness? How do we be salt and light and leaven in the public square? So that's, that's what it is. My guests have been Matt Kamek, editor of this book, Reformed Public Theology, which is dedicated to my other guest, Rich Mao. It's been such a delight to have a conversation with you gentlemen today. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andrea Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andrea Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.